0: We have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think that statement is so profound. Don't you? Thomas Jefferson knew what he was talking about there. I mean, isn't that what life is about? We're pursuing happiness. Who would argue with that sort of thing? Pursuing happiness? In fact, we would sacrifice everything. Sacrifice. We work so hard because we want to live Lives that are happy, and I think that that's I think it's insightful. But what I've, as I've been as I've, as I've pondered that, and as you read the Bible, you start to realize that, well, sometimes our greatest longing, our greatest desires, can end up becoming the thing that gets us in the most trouble our greatest desires, our deepest longings, are sometimes when we achieve them, when we get them, they actually can be the worst thing that ever happens to us. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, one of the worst things that God can do for us, Paul says, is that he can hand us over to our desires. I find that thought-provoking, why is it that our deepest longings, our deepest desires can be the thing that maybe could be the worst thing that ever happens to us? Let me give an example celebrities. This pattern plays itself out over and over again, doesn't it? You have somebody who's extremely talented, and they're pretty much a pleasant and good person. But then when they achieve fame and achieve and, and acquire fortune, they can become monsters and destroy their lives and tear their lives apart. I don't need to name names. There's this is this runs a whole industry of gossip magazines, doesn't it? Of how people of great talent and great power and great fame can get in so much trouble when they get everything that they want. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes your longing, your deepest desire can get you in the most trouble. It actually can be the worst thing that happens to you. So much so that Paul says in Romans 1, that one of the worst things God can do is hand you over to your desires. But then Paul goes on to say even more about that. He says that we, the reason why this is a problem is because we exchange the created things for the creator. We start to worship the creation and not the Creator, and that is why it gets us in so much trouble. We're in a passage of we're in a book called 1 Peter. That if you've been t- tracking with us, and the verse we're on right now, if, as we're moving through this this this, uh, this book, says this along the same lines. Beloved, I urge you, urge you as sojourners and exiles. He's talking to Christians who are spread all throughout the region in pagan countries, in places that don't, uh, don't follow God, don't follow Jesus, don't follow Yahweh. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You see, there was this understanding among the first Christians, Paul and, and, and Peter, the writer here, that the passions of this, the flesh, the deepest longings and desires can wage war against your soul. Now, as I've thought about this, and, and through my journey with Christ, as, I've, as, as I walk and, and follow him, you know, one of the things, that when, when Joy and I, my wife, were in college, there was a pastor, his name is David Johnson, put in this perspective into my mind that a lot of times, the things we get stuck in fall into three categories. One is money, The other one is sex, and the other one is power. Money, sex, and power. These three categories typically trip us up so often. Now, each one of these things, if you think about it, money, sex, and power, aren't bad in themselves. They're not necessarily bad themselves, inherently bad. The problem is when these good things become the thing, isn't it? It's when these good things, money's good, sex is good, power's good, can be used well. When it becomes the thing, that's when we get in trouble. When we start to worship it, when we start to give our lives to it, and it becomes the thing, that's where we get in trouble. Let's talk about money. I want to make a point here. Nobody thinks they're greedy. Oftentimes, we talk about greedy people, but we can't, it's very difficult to identify greed in ourselves. It's very hard to see that we're worshiping at the altar of money. Let me explain why. I think Tim Keller says it here, and I'm, I'm drawing a lot from his book, Counterfeit Idols. It says, Tim, Tim Keller, he's a pastor in, get this, downtown Manhattan. Imagine being a pastor of an evangelical church in downtown Manhattan today. This guy's doing it, so I will listen. I think he's got something to say. So why can't, here's Tim, why can't anyone in the grip of greed see it? Back at this point, why is that, why is that the case? Tim says, The counterfeit god of money uses powerful sociological and psychological dynamics. Everyone tends to live in a particular socioeconomic bracket. You tend to live next to people and with people. Neighborhoods around you typically are in the same bracket, same class. Once you're able to afford to live in a particular neighborhood, send your children to its schools and participate in its social life, you'll find yourself surrounded by quite a number of people who have more money than you. So get the picture. We all kind of move into a certain area. We're typically around people who are in the same class, same tax bracket, right? But then we do discover that there are people next door, nearby, who've got more than we do. You don't compare yourself to the rest of the world. No. You compare yourself to those who are in your bracket, The human heart always wants to justify itself. And this is one of the easiest ways. You say, I don't live as well as him or her or them. My means are modest compared to theirs. You can reason and think like that no matter how lavishly you're living. Greed creeps up on us, doesn't it? He goes on to say this. Let me go back. As a result, most Americans think of themselves as middle class. And only 2% of them call themselves upper class. But the rest of the world is not fooled. When people visit here from other parts of the globe, they're staggered to see the level of materialistic comfort the majority of Americans have come to view as a necessity. Nobody thinks they're greedy. No. In fact, I don't have as as much money as them. I think one of the funniest things when you tell people, man, you're rich, and they go, "Whoa, whoa, 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 no, no, no. I'm not rich. Nobody thinks they're greedy. Jesus, it's interesting when he talks about greed, he says, beware of greed. He doesn't say beware of adultery. He says, beware of greed. Because his phrasing is different. Because oftentimes greed can creep up on us. We typically adultery. We don't, oh, uh, this is adultery. You know, it's, it, we, we can identify that. Greed can creep up on us. And Jesus said greed is not... Not only the love of money, he says that, it's love of money, but excessive anxiety around it. Look at this, he says this. Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard. Be aware of all kinds of greed. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Be aware. This is going to creep up on you people. Be aware. And then he says this. Consist of, which I'm taking to mean that you're defined by what you own. Defined by what you consume. Your personality is all based on money. And what happens is, when you lose your money, you lose yourself. Imagine if those investments, the safe investments, start to go this way. Imagine, think about your bank account and what's in it. Imagine if that were to go away. Imagine if you'd have to sell it all, sell the house, sell the car, live in a trailer park, live, live, and you have to downgrade significantly. What would that say about you? And as you start to answer those questions in your own head, which, by the way, no one else is listening to what you're thinking right now, so you can be honest. What does that say about you? What voices rise up in your mind? Oh, I'll fire to lose everything. Listen to yourself. Listen to, if you're processing, listen to the, some of the, the chatter in your mind around this. Are you consumed? Are you defined by what you own and what you consume? Are you identifying with what Tim says where, yeah, cre- greed does creep in? I do spend lots of time thinking about so and so down the street. Or maybe someone in this church, that they have more, and you start to dream and think about that. Are you a lover of money? A lover of money is typically someone who daydreams and fantasizes about money. You think about new ways to make money, new possessions you can buy, and there's a mark of jealousy in your life as you look at other people. Are you a truster of money? The more money you have, do you feel a sense of control? Do you feel a sense of security? Do you feel safe with the more money you have? How much of your security is found in money and your possessions and your investments and those things? Greed creeps in, doesn't it? Are you a servant of money? We have to have it. I will work night and day. I will hustle to get this. I will sell my soul for money. We obey money. Luke 16, it says, you can't uh, can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve money. What interesting language. Serving money. Obeying money. Money is your master. And Tim Keller says this. Money is one of the most common counterfeit gods there is. When it takes hold of your heart, it blinds you to what's happening. It controls you through your anxieties and your lusts. And it brings you to put it ahead of all other things. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Let's talk about sex. Sex and relationships. There's a guy in Genesis named Jacob. Jacob has got a crazy life. Started off really crazy. In fact, it says that when he was in his mom's womb, Rebecca, Rebecca was married to Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. So very significant. So when he was in a- Rebecca's womb, he wrestled with his twin brother. I don't know what that's called today, but that's, that's what was going on. Is there a medical term for this? But they were battling in this. <clears throat> and that said the older was the elder was serve the younger, which means that that uh, Jacob would eventually the prophecy said eventually uh, be the one that that follows the line of abraham so <clears throat> but the, <laughs> some other crazy things when when uh, Esau, his brother, Esau's his brother, comes out of the womb. He came out first, and Jacob had his heel, <laughs> which I think is just hilarious. It's nothing to do with the sermon. I just think it's funny. But, but <clears throat> Esau is covered in red hair. He's just like furry red hair. And there's two parts, and I don't have time to go into it, but there's two times when, when he deceives his brother, Esau, to give him his birthright. He deceives his brother, and he also deceives his own dad. He goes in. His dad's dying and he puts on this like fur, and he, and he pretends to be Esau, this red fur or whatever. And his dad fills it, and he's like, oh, you must be Esau. So he blesses him, it's his, his oldest son. And he deceives his dad. Well, he ends up, bottom line, ends up having to leave his family, leaves, loses his dad, loses his mom, loses all of it. And he works for his uncle, Laban. So let's pick it up. This is Genesis 29. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older daughter was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely and in form and beautiful. She was hot. Jacob <laughs> Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Ladies, has your man done this? <laughs> Worked for the, your father-in-law for seven years. So he he offered himself to his dad. So... So Laban said, it's this, said this, it's better, it's better that I give you to her than to someone, other man. So stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed only like a few days to him because of his love for her. Do you love that? Seemed, there's a little hint here, isn't there? What's going on in this story? And then, after seven years, Jacob says to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. Now, this is the kind of cleaned up version. Apparently, from, from looking at this, apparently this phrase in Hebrew was loaded. Like, we'll move on, okay? But, get this. Jacob was a very broken man. Jacob never had his father's love. Jacob, uh, Isaac was all about Esau. Jacob lost his mother's love. He had to leave his family. And he had no sense of God's love and care. He was a broken man. But when he sees Rachel, he's like, if I can have her, if I can can get her, she will complete my life. I'll do whatever it takes. Now, there's a little twist. You saw it go by, but I don't know if you caught it, if you don't know the story. Laman said, it's better that you get her than some other man. Now, for those of you who've read... Donald Trump's are the deal. That, that right there is not a promise. That, it sounds like he's saying, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. He didn't say that will happen. He didn't get, he didn't get that, like, a commitment from Laban there. And guess what? Marriage happens, a woman comes down the the aisle, she's heavily veiled, right? They get married. There's a wedding night. And then, it says this. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Not Rachel, Leah. And Jacob said, what has this you've done to me? Did I not serve you with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Te- you know, technicality here. Uh. Just complete the week, get married to to Leah, and and, and, uh, we'll give you the other one in return for serving me for another seven years. Another seven years. He does it. He does it. One of the ways to tell if something good has become an idol, if you're trying to get life from it, is that the thought of it becomes intoxicating and reality becomes very fuzzy. And people are able to take advantage of you. I see this all the time in relationships. I, and I even look back at my own life. And Relationships make reality fuzzy. When you really want something, you don't see very clearly. And one of the things that breaks my heart a lot is when I see people pursuing God's plan for their life. And then a relationship enters and it's like suddenly... Everything they'll do whatever it takes to get that relationship, and this plan that was happening, they they abandon. It happens a lot in the church. It's I almost think it's like the enemy's big play to like bring somebody in at the right moment, because people just get all it just gets fuzzy. The other thing too is that maybe you've seen this in today's culture, like we put everything into relationships. Everything to our spouses, our our boyfriend, our girlfriend. There's so much on riding on that that it's crushing. It never fulfills fully, but we pursue and we pursue and we pursue, and we and, and people can take advantage of us. People can like you know. It seems like everything's going all right, but then something comes along, and or in 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 marriage. Um, there's, an, there's a, a song, singer-songwriter I like a lot. His name is David Wilcox. And he writes a song about marriage. And it's called you know, um, the, the, the chorus. The, the so the picture he paints in this song is um, that a man and a wife are two broken cups trying to fill each other. And they can't do it. But we try. And we expect. And these passions, they lie to us. They say, I will provide. I'll give you everything you need. You'll have your sense of worth from me. And we will, we will sacrifice them. We will worship at the altar of sex and relationships. And it will, it can't come through for us. That's why Peter says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. I'm talking about power. Power started right away. Garden of Eden. If you eat this apple, if you take this fruit, you will be like God. You will control your own destiny. But this leads to deep fear and deep worry. Deep fear and deep worry. Uh, Bernie Madoff, this guy that did a Ponzi scheme, $65 billion. He said this, I could not admit my failures as a money manager. I couldn't admit my error in judgment while I saw the scheme grow. I, I was always thinking I could work my way out. I could power through this. He was afraid of what it would mean if he were to actually admit that he wasn't able to do it. So he just kept going. Power. Is born out of fear, and fear gives birth to even more fear. This is something that creeps up on us as well. When our pride says, I can't admit that I've taken taken on too much, I've gone too far, because I can't admit it, because what would happen to me? We begin to hide, we begin to cover, we begin to control the situation. Power is deceitful in that way that you can, like Bernie said, work your way out of this. Nebuchadnezzar, in the book of Daniel, has these several dreams where he's this powerful king. And all of his dreams are about how these... I, these uh, statues would fall, and, and there's one with like, this giant soldier in, 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 in all sorts of armor. He gets hit by a huge rock and all sorts of stuff. And Daniel comes and interprets his dreams and tells him about how, well, essentially, that his kingdom and all human kingdoms will come to an end, and that God's kingdom is the one that's going to reign. God's the real God, the true God, and his kingdom will reign. And I love this, and I didn't really know this part until I, until this, studying this, and But Nebuchadnezzar, at the end, turns to God, and he has this beautiful statement. He says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Take that to heart. Here's a man, extremely powerful, and when he surrenders his life to God, he says his sanity was restored. I wonder how many people in this room, if you were honest, to say, I'm living an insane life right now. I'm worshiping at the altar of power or money or sex. I'm living an insane life right now, if if it really comes down to it. And Nebuchadnezzar, this great, powerful king, does it. He raises his eyes to heaven. He says, my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation. He's just praising God from generation to generation. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne... And became even greater than before. You see, power is birthed out of fear, and fear continues to just build and build. And this picture gives us hope. Nebuchadnezzar gives us hope because in his surrendering to God, in him giving his life to God, he was restored. Do you believe in redemption? Do you believe that God is a God of redemption? Do you believe that God is a God that restores? Beloved, I, I urge you. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Chapel Hill, when it comes to money, sex, and relationships, and power? Are you bowing down at the altar of these things? Are you living an insane life? Are these things the thing to you? Be honest. No one's hearing your thoughts. Are these things waging war against your soul? Do you agree with Peter that that's what happens when you seek those things out? I certainly have seen that feel it. I feel the battle across these things. They wage war against your soul. So my question for you this morning is, what's your soul identity? Are you a worshiper of money? Are you a worshiper of sex? Are you a worshiper of power? What? Who are you? Now, this, this is the end of the sermon, and we're, we're about to wrap up. But I want to tell you why this is preached this way and why we went to this. Because we're going through the book of First Peter, and it's about to take a turn, a significant turn. If you've been with us for the last few months, the book of First Peter from chapter 1 and, cha- and, and chapter 2, it's all about what God has done for us and who God is. And also who we are. If you were here last week, Paul talked about this verse. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. That you may proclaim the excellencies of who called, called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. These are identity statements. Now, we're about to take a major shift in the book. And we're going to get very tactical. It's going to start talking about conduct and maybe rules and things like that. And one of the concerns that Paul and I had was, if we take this turn right now without stopping for a second, we may start talking about all these practical rule things and we're going to take it on as religion. More religion. More rules. I just got to do these things. This is my Christian duty. And I just take it on. We are convinced that that is not the road to life. God is not honored by just us following the rules or having the right behavior. God is honored when we put our full trust and faith in Him, when our sole identity is our identity in Christ. When we do these things that we're going to talk about over the next several weeks, when we do these things from a place of honoring God, of faith in God, of identity in God... That's when God is honored. That's when life happens. That's when we see the kingdom in our lives. That's when we see the power of God in our lives. But if we have our identity in money, sex, or power, or something else that wasn't mentioned today, if our identity is found somewhere else and then we try to live the Christian life, it's like we're trying to run this way when we have these hooks in us, pulling us back and ripping us apart and waging war against our soul. And it's not a way to live. And so for these next couple weeks, we're just going to challenge and think about where are we at when it comes to this before we move into the tactical, before we move into the, the rules and the conduct. So what's your soul identity? You're a chosen race, a chosen people. God wanted a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Here's the question. Is this just information to you? Is this just Christian theology to you? Or is this you? Have you embraced this identity? Are you a priest in the royal priesthood? When I asked you just a few minutes ago, who are you? Did your response be, I I am a child of God. I am a priest. In the royal priesthood, I am a citizen of the holy nation. I am a chosen person. I am a person of God's own possession. And my mission is to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called me out of darkness into marvelous light. Is that your identity? So my challenge for you this week and for all of us, self-included, is to consider this question. Is this just information or is this you? Are you having things wage war against your soul, the passions of this world? I'm going to have the ushers come forward now and the worship team as well. Let's pray. God, it's so easy to wander into these things. And you say over and over in your scripture that it's not that we can't do this on our own, that we need actually your power to do this. We need the Holy Spirit to move in us to do this. So God, we pray that you would move. That you would raise to light the, the altars that we're worshiping at. That we would see the, the temple of it The emptiness of it The deceit of it Help us to be Honest with ourselves Because it's scary What would happen if I were God help us Through the fear Help us to say Christ is enough Help us to find our soul Identity in you In and the things that you've said about us, that we are your royal priesthood. We're a chosen people, holy nation, a people after your own possession, saved from darkness into marvelous light to proclaim the excellencies of you. God, lead us to that place where we can proclaim and live out and be a light, not out of obligation or religious duty or rules or coer- coercion, but out of a passion and a true Identity in who we are in you. God, we ask that you would do that work in our church. That can't be done through a sermon. That can't be done through our own efforts. We need you, Lord. Lead us to that place where we can proclaim what you've done in our lives, that we're yours. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.